Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this amazing episode full of practice tips, practice philosophy, practice psychology with Susanna Klein, uh, I just have a few things that I want to mention. Number one, don't forget to check the link in the description uh, for the Gold Method app where you can check out uh, the way that I practice, the systems that I use to practice where you can just choose an etude, break it into sections, choose some goal tempos, some starting tempos, and it gives you two weeks of practice practice. It's uh, something that I'm really hoping that people will check out and hopefully it will help you in your practicing and making it effective and efficient. Number two, make sure to listen to the end of the episode where you can hear the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And number three, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with Houghton Horns, they are a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making. But needing to rent or buy things to try them out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free in-person virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoutonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I am Ryan Beach, and today's episode, I'm super excited to be here with Susanna Klein, who is not a brass player. I typically interview mostly brass players at this point. Uh, for a long time, I tried to spread the love and interview bassoonists and clarinet players and, and other types of non-brass, but it seems to lately have been mostly focused on brass players. So I'm excited to um, reach out again um, for a few specific reasons. One, it's always good to get perspectives of non-brass players and all of our idiosyncrasies. But uh, Suzanne has done a lot of uh, work on trying to understand practicing and how we can get more out of our practice sessions. And most of all of you of my audience know that I'm super big about this. So I wanted to reach out and try to um, see if we could get a, a nice conversation going about trying to um, me and us learning from her and seeing if we can get some stuff. So for those of you that don't know her, Susanna Klein is a violinist. She's a professor at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, got it. She's an entrepreneur and author. Uh, we'll get into this later. She made a uh, practice journal that uh, is aimed at helping get the most out of practice. She's just done a lot of stuff. And so I'm excited to see how she uh, decided that, uh, how you came to doing all these things. Because sometimes I think we can get us musicians locked into, I do this one thing. So how we branch out of that, I'm excited to get into as well. All of that being said, before we get started, I just want to thank you for being on my show and giving me some of your time. I'm so honored to be here. 
It's great to meet you. Yeah. Um, so let's get started with your backstory. I'm, I've talked enough. Uh, <laughs> just as far back as is necessary for us to kind of understand uh, how you got started in music and where you traveled, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So let's see. I'm I'm a German-American hybrid. My dad is German and my mom is American. And I started playing uh, when I was 10, when I was living in Germany, which for a violinist is kind of late, probably yeah. for a trumpet player. That's about right on. But That's about right. Yeah. Um, came to the States in eighth grade. And uh, I studied with my mom when I was growing up until she kicked me out of her studio. And I wasn't terribly serious until pretty late in high school. And sort of the bug bit me. Oh, my God, I need to do music. And what do I do? I'm not very advanced. You know, how am I How am I going to do this? Um, did my undergrad at VCU, where I now teach. I've cut, sort of come full circle. Um, then did a master's degree in Boston at Boston University. Uh, from there... Let's see, I took two and a half years for my master's and I was I was pretty thoroughly convinced that I wasn't good enough to get a job. And so I just sort of preemptively decided that I would study, would go to school, you know, for longer and study music history um, because I really loved research. And then because the pressure was off and I had applied to PhD programs, I took uh, an audition. And, you know, that can happen when you're not really meaning to get a job, it's easier to get a job because you're like, well, I'll just, you know, go try this out, whatever. And that yeah. was a that was a one year position in Memphis, which I got. And then when I was there, I, I sort of came to terms with, oh, you know, I really do want to play for a living primarily. And I sort of realized that the music history thing was a little bit of a psychological um, out for me. So I wouldn't have to face, you know, what most professional musicians have to face, which is like auditions, unemployment, all that stuff. Um, so I spent the year in Memphis and then actually I went back to graduate school and started my DMA because I just wanted to take more lessons, learn how to play better. Did that for a year, um, started playing viola in a string quartet, got sidetracked, switched to viola. It's a long story. Took a leave of absence, blah, blah, blah. Then the string quartet fell apart and I thought, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I doing here? Do I want to, you know? want to finish. And in the middle of all that, um, a job came open um, in the Richmond Symphony. And, um, you know, my family at that point was in Northern Virginia. And I was like, oh, this would be so perfect, close to home. Plus, I can't pay my rent right now. Um, so I switched back to violin um, and then took that job. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, came in number two. There were two openings. Um, Got that job, was here for three and a half years, was doing the audition circuit, all that stuff. Then um, got a job in uh, Colorado Symphony in Denver. Took my then boyfriend, now husband, out there with me. He's like a jazz musician. Um, you know, we were out there for a year before we were like, wait a minute, we're in the middle of the country. Um, we wanna have kids, we wanna have a family, no support, really high cost of living. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is not going to work, you know? Um, and so I ended up re-auditioning when there was an opening for for the Richmond Symphony. Just by chance, there was a, a year later, there was an opening for Principal Second here. So I came in um, a couple days before my wedding, re-auditioned for the orchestra here and, you know, got lucky um, and got that job, moved back. Did that for, uh, 
I don't know, five years or something, and mm -hmm. um, ended up uh, suffering a pretty bad injury, not from the job, but I dislocated my shoulder, independent of playing. And that led to like a bunch of other things, but one of them being me realizing I cannot, I cannot play the violin for five or six hours a day. Like it's just, you know, and I tried everything. Um, I mean, I certainly made a lot of progress with PT and massage and lots of things, but one of them it was just me realizing um, this is not going to work for the long haul. Um, and a couple years later, this job came open at VCU, this full-time job, full-time violin position, which hadn't existed for a few years. Um, it was adjunct only, and I was adjunct there at the time. And I love teaching, and but the daytime schedule and being able to give my arm a rest, you know, convinced me kind of to throw my name in the hat very late in the process. And uh, I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure I came in number two there. This is my claim to fame because in Colorado, I came in as number three, but there were three auditions. So I would say like, sometimes you just have to come in second. Yeah. Um, and so I got that job at VCU and that's where I've been. Um, so I, I teach full-time at VCU and I still play part-time in the symphony or chamber music, but that's where I've been since 2012 okay. for a good long time. And, you know, in the, at the university, got into all this research about practicing and that kind of stuff, because I, my life is a lot more varied there now than it was when I was playing orchestra full time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, I, I kind of want to go back and stick on the part where you said that you were sort of avoiding the things that entail trying to pursue, especially a, a, a if if you're going to try to be an orchestra or something like that. Of course, you don't necessarily have to deal with auditions and all that stuff as a freelancer and as a, as a private teacher, but specifically as an orchestral musician with that desire. Um, clearly that you, you faced it, but looking back on it, and if you've ever had opportunities to speak to others who may be feeling that same kind of thing, what you know, what would you either tell yourself or what would you, what do you tell others who are struggling with this as a uh, sort of with that knowledge of you coming through it? How do you encourage others that they either should do it and it's worth it or like maybe this isn't right for you because of this and it's, this is telling you right. that this is not the right path. Like what's your, what's your way through that? I mean, I think challenging yourself and actually I have to say, I miss this, this little part about auditions. I miss, I think challenging yourself for such a high level of excellence, you know, with a deadline, um, with a lot of rep, with auditions, that's good for your playing. Like there's, mm -hmm. there should never be any regret out of that because I think I did make some of my most um, significant progress as a player when I was going through that process. So I have, I have only good things to say about that. In terms of, you know, actually getting a job, what I would tell myself, you know, my younger self, is a little bit of, you know, it's going to be okay. And be careful what you wish for, you know, because I, I only wanted to play orchestra. I did not want to teach. I didn't want to do anything else. And I, I think it's because I didn't know much else. And I think, again, I had a lot of fear, um, particularly about the teaching part. Well, I don't have any, you know, I'm not good enough to teach or I don't, I don't know what I would say. And, you know, I started teaching in Boston um, because I was broke and I immediately loved it. I mean, I really loved it. Um, and I think both for our psychological health and sort of for the long term and to alleviate the pressure, being a jack of all trades is a great thing. Because when you do one thing all the time, it I don't think that 
it makes most of us happy. You know, certainly the most the happiest orchestra players are those who have other irons in the fire. You know, they're doing mm -hmm. chamber music, they're doing some teaching. They're not just doing that out of economic necessity. I think it's also just autonomy, which you generally don't have in an orchestra, right? You're, and I don't mean to be down on orchestra because I love playing it, but you know, when you're doing it full time, as you know, like you will play that piece with the conductor who is scheduled in that tempo and at that dynamic that you are told that day. You don't yeah, run sure. your own schedule. You don't run you, your own nuances of what you're doing. So you have to, there's a lot of satisfaction in it, but you also have to kind of, um, you know, create your own jam as well. Um, the thing about auditions, I mean, what I tell people, and this is just also to, A, to be honest, but B, to um, take the pressure off. There's, there's stuff that you can control and there is stuff that you can't control. Um, usually when you go for an audition, somebody told me this and it was very helpful. You know, even if there are a hundred people there at that audition, you're not competing with a hundred, you're competing with 30. There are a hundred there, mm. only 30, if you put your mind to it and you have prepared incredibly well, recorded yourself, played for 15 people, you know what I mean? Done everything that you need to do. There will be 30 other people there who, who take it to that level, that level of preparation. So you know, that's one thing. And then the other thing just, you know, for me personally, and this is probably why I ended up getting so much into psychology of playing and then psychology of practice, which is what I'm really interested in, is that every time that I had a really great audition experience, I had, there was a psychological out. So when I came to Richmond the first time, it was a uh, you know, it was, it was not that audition. I didn't feel like, oh, I hope they like me. I hope they advance me, you know, to the next round. It was really like, I don't have any money in my checking account. I can't pay my rent. I need to figure something out. Maybe I can get this job, which yeah. you would think would make me do worse, but somehow it didn't because it wasn't about my playing or about approval. It really was just, this is a means to an end. This would be very convenient, you know? And then when I got my when I got my Denver job, um, so Memphis we already talked about earlier. But when I got my Colorado job, I, I had gone to Germany to visit my dad over Christmas break. Got food poisoning there, um, really badly. Didn't play for like two days at all. Got on the plane to fly first to the East Coast and then on to Denver. There was ice, flights delayed. I ended up being traveling for thirty six hours. It was horrible. Oh and I hadn't played for three days then before the audition. Now, logically, what we learn in music school is like, oh, you have to be prepared and you have to be, you know, you have to be warmed up. And nothing tells you that I should get a job out of that experience. But I played better in that audition than I had played in many, many auditions. Because yeah. I didn't, I really didn't care. I didn't have the, whatever that is, that's like, oh, I hope I do well. And I've invested so much and all that. I just was like, I'm here, I'm upright. I'm going to play. And I did that for four rounds. And it wasn't until like super finals that I started getting this feeling of, oh, wait, what do I need to do? You know, kind of overthinking. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it sounds um, like the expectation was just so low due to the circumstances that yeah, yeah, had I was preceded like, it that you're like, well, almost as if it's, you know, uh, a friend of mine who you will probably know, Sam Huss, who's principal trumpet in in Richmond, he told a very similar story about how it was maybe the night before or the morning of the, the Airbnb he was staying at, like flooded. Oh. 
and it just and, and of the, this audition and it just sort of took his mind out of it and it was mm-hmm. almost as if it was like this is like some sort of sign of some whatever it's is not good and so i think he showed up with less of an expectation that things had not gone exactly perfectly that he sort of maybe released some of like maybe not like i'm not going to win this but like I just need to like. I'm just here. I'm just going to play. Yeah. Yeah, If we can get out of our own way, you know. Um, And so there are experiences like that that I've had over and over again. Then my second audition in Richmond, actually, it was my third, but um, for principal, that that was really bizarre. That was I had a dream the the night before the audition, and this is what kind of woke me up. And in my dream, I was playing for an old teacher who's very, very harsh, very honest teacher. <laughs> um, and I'm playing for it in my dream. It kind of feels like I can do anything. You know, you know when you have dreams that make no sense, like you're flying, but it seems totally natural in the dream. Sure. It was like that on the violin. Like I didn't have to worry about, you know, cracking notes or missing notes. It was just like effortless. Like I've always wanted to play. And in the dream, she said, why are you playing for me? You sound gr- like I have nothing to add to this. Like. You sound great. I I don't have any suggestions. You should just go go play. And I woke up and I went to that audition and you know, my mindset was different. Even though sure. I knew it wasn't real. I mean, <laughs> but um so those experiences, you know, taught me a lot about kind of getting out of your way. What I don't know, you know, yet is sort of how to reproduce that. I mean, how do you fake food poisoning, right? Or or a certain <laughs> dream or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, and the other thing about auditions is like, it's, it's, some of it's not about you. It's about who's there, who else is there, who else is listening. For me, I always did the best in terms of advancing when I had um, two or three or preferably five in a row. You know, of course, yeah, yeah. Just that, more that's practice when I doing re- the thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that, that simulation. Like I know before, the last um, audition I won, which was Richmond, um, I think I had done Seattle right before it and one other one. They were like back, back, back to back to back to back, bam, 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 you know. And I got kicked out of the first round a bunch. And then like next one, you know. So I always, yeah. I never did very well in auditions when I had, when it was um, just one lonely one. <clears throat> As violinists, we have a huge advantage because there are always auditions for violins, right? Like trumpet players, I assume it's <laughs> harder to do. So there was have- a period of time when I was in grad school that there was, it just seemed like there were always auditions to take, you know? And then what, this is an interesting discussion for me because I feel very similar actually when I was, t- I took, I think, let's say eight auditions my second year of grad school, right? So that's a fair amount, you that's know? That's a lot, don't and then you, at, yeah. At, towards the end of that, I won the principal trumpet with the Indianapolis. I won that position, I won that audition. And then I um, didn't get tenure with that job. And then there's a three-month period between the day I found out and the day I won Alabama. And there were six auditions. Alabama was the sixth, six. sixth audition of six, right? And um, I had also resigned myself to if I don't win this, I had to deal with a lot of identity stuff, right? Like, of course, right? Because if, if you don't job? get tenure somewhere, that's like, I mean, talk yeah. about an experience that. Um, yeah. But interestingly, since Alabama, I have not advanced at any audition, but I would say that I'm playing significantly more compelling and better and more musically than I ever have. And part of it, I think, is I now take an audition like every two years, you know? Right. So not only is there one, but I have, I mean, so I've really, and this is what I hope we can dive into, I've really had to think about what it looks like to simulate an audition 
And to simulate what's like for me, I don't get nervous for anything except for auditions. So like I can't simulate like playing for people doesn't make me nervous. So I've really I've actually come to some understanding recently. And there's there's I'm so interested because you're interested in the psychology of practice. So I'm curious to tell you some of my experience to see like what your what your thoughts are. But long story short, I totally agree that having a bunch. The trade off is is that you maybe it's possible that like the preparation for them will be quote less, right? Because you have more to do. Like you can't give your full to one thing, but you have yes, more but chances. See, I, think, I think even that kind of helped me because I think I tend to navel gaze, you know, and, and mm. obsess. And I think actually when I had more, I was like, okay, what are the three hard spots here? Okay, run it. Good. What are the, yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but certainly, yeah, that that's really interesting, actually. That if you don't get nervous, you don't get nervous playing for like pure trumpet players. No, not at all. Because I just well, and so if we want to get into this, I'm happy to share because I feel like I've I've learned about this recently. So I am the I've been the kind of player where I've had to basically say like I don't care, right? Like I I don't care about the result of it and things mm-hmm. like that. But almost from like a defense mechanism point of view, like not only from a place of like I, I want to release the result, but also like I don't really care what happens. So if it's like it's not my best, it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. I I would res- it's like you're talking about I have an out now, mm-hmm. and so I didn't really give my best. Barbara Butler, my graduate teacher, talked a lot about this on her episode where if we don't ever fully do our best, we have an out to say, well, I like didn't mm-hmm. do my best, so you know whatever. So I've been learning about this where I'm a player who sort of learned to just play by not overthinking things. So I don't really understand the processes, but it kind of works, right? And then, but that to me will be, I'll hit a plateau. Like at some point, I will never be able to really fully self-actualize, right? Because I'll need to understand parts of the process that I don't. And what has happened is that um, I wouldn't get nervous for anything. And then and then I'd go to this audition, and because I'm someone who doesn't get nervous for something, and because I'm someone who doesn't think, when I got to the audition, I would say, it's cool. And then this really small voice in my head would go, but if you win this, you, that's employment, like that's money, that's a better, you know? Like I, And I couldn't get that voice out of my head, no matter, I was prepared, I had done all of the things, but that voice, and I didn't know how to silence that voice. Right, you gotta get food is, poisoning. <laughs> exactly. But what I've learned is is I don't actually think I have to silence that voice. I just need to replace it with a different voice that's more productive. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what that's a lot of what I've been doing in my own practice even the past like two months since that. Uh and so I'll tell you an experience I had. I'm rambling here, but it's it's headed to something it. that I would love your comment on. So last two Last week or so, maybe two weeks ago, we played Stravinsky's Octet, this piece by Revueltas that has a big trumpet solo and then Soldier's Tale. It's a huge, I mean, huge for everybody, but a lot of trumpet stuff in there. And I wrote, I write practice programs for myself to follow. So it's like everything builds up to this one moment, right? So like I'm able to really, at least in my mind, really maximize the learning process in each sort of stage. And I got there and I was like, let's say 30 to 40% of the nervous that I feel in auditions. And this has almost never happened before. And I think it's because I allowed myself to like care. You know, I allowed myself to say, yeah. I'm really prepared. My, I, my best is possible. 
And so I'm really, but I knew like what to think. I had ingrained certain cues that I wanted to think about while performing. And if things went sideways, I knew I just needed to get back on that track. And and it helped because I was sort of uncomfortable most of the first performance, but nice. I still played really well because I could keep myself on track with what I knew I needed to imprint on my playing to be able to stay at that high level. So like basically my mind almost didn't matter because I knew what I needed to do. And it was interesting to me because... Now I feel like if I went to, and I have to take an audition to figure this out, but right. I, now I feel like if I went to an audition, if that voice popped up, I would be able to say, that's fine, keep the air forward. And I would be able to replace it with something that's more productive. So I'm right. curious I, for your I thoughts sometimes, on all of um, that. You know, we, we know a couple things about, you know, if we want to get into the performing thing, you know, that they've done studies on. One of them just has to do, for example, with words like, I'm nervous or I'm worried or I'm, you know, some kind of negative connotation influences people different than substituting the word excited. That's actually like verified. It works for public speakers, musicians, all sorts of things that just taking that feeling and saying, I'm excited. I'm excited to play. Even if you don't really quote believe it, but just using certain vocabulary can help because we do need we need to assign a label to that feeling. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And we can do yeah, yeah. a forward one or we can do a backward one psychologically. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm a big, I'm a, I shouldn't say this. I'm a big fan, but I'm, for auditions, for the first round of auditions, I'm a big fan of beta blockers mm-hmm. for, for the physical stuff. It doesn't help for the mental stuff. But for the physical stuff, it can help. I I used to take them for the first rounds and then not again for the successive rounds because I needed to be a little more present. But, um, but yeah, if you can, if you can basically, if you could figure out how to simulate, create those simulation experiences, and you might have to be really draconian, like, um, you know, I used to do crazy things. Because for me, it was it felt more physical, but getting, you know, the getting up in the middle of the night. Do you know that one? Yeah. And like playing the list or something like that. Yeah. And playing the list. Right. And just yeah, like, yeah. okay. Because what I had to work on was kind of what you're talking about, these cues. Okay. If if it feels like it's going sideways, how to, how, how I should not throw in the towel. Because that was my big thing. The very first thing, or if I wasn't 100% comfortable, do you know what I mean? I would kind of self-sabotage. Yeah. And just mm-hmm. play really middle of the road, boring, whatever. Um, so, like, you know, f- I think everybody's different. Like, for me, I get really nervous for people that I know well and like. Like, the more I like them, the more nervous I get. So, when I want to do simulation training, I just pick people I care about <laughs> and I start playing for them, you know. Sure, I usually yeah. will do it at their house, um, never in my own thing, because I, I've I've learned that I'm very sensitive to environment. And if you're going to an audition, like you will not be the master of your domain. It's going to sound different. It's going to be cold or hot or whatever. So when I've, you know, when I've gone through, I always play for people before recital or whatever, but when I really have lost my marbles, um, you know, I've done things like play for 10 people in 10 days. And I just, hey, what are you doing Wednesday at four? Can I come over? And like, I just come over, unpack, play. It's not an audition. This is more for like individual pieces. But, you know, that that's what I found out worked for me. Mm-hmm. So it's like you just figured out that, hey, when I have this much big rep, 
you know what I mean, going on mm -hmm. at once, it starts to feel a little bit like this. Because I am a huge believer in simulation training is whatever interventions we do, whether it's to focus on other things, or sometimes I'll think about my feet in auditions, because that kind of takes me out of the the violin world, which is great, you know, breathing, you know, beta blockers, whatever it is that we're that we're using as interventions, we need to be able to try them out. We need the simulation work to try them out to see, does this right. actually help me? You know? Well, yeah, one of the things, even before that, that concert. So that concert was, to me, it's like sort of the final, I actually listened to a podcast episode earlier today that sort of gave me some language here, but it's like sort of the final stage of what we're talking about where you can, Take everything you've learned and all of the habits you've been trying to ingrain, and you're and you basically it in a in a space where you, it's it needs to become automatic, sort of in a fatigued state, like a, for a length of a concert under stress, right? Mm -hmm. Not so like, under stress is the big part. Can you have access to it in an environment that's uncomfortable? So when I was testing out and trying to ingrain these types of things that were not in a concert, I basically on my YouTube channel I decided I'm going to start recording these really difficult French etudes because for me playing lightly has been a struggle of mine. So I picked those and then I was like, I'm going to record them. And at first I started recording them and then I would touch up a few missed things here and there. Right. But then that started to get really annoying to me because I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, mm -hmm. am I trying to record this and then touch up a few notes so it's people still believe it's, you know, it's an, an, an edited thing. So starting with etude number four, I started just doing unedited takes again. I had done this in the past. I started doing it again. Starting with number, I think it was eight, I started doing first take, right? So You're like, but I wouldn't, this is yeah, great. So I, but I wouldn't necessarily release the first take. Like it wouldn't be, this is the thing I haven't quite gotten to yet. It wouldn't be like, this is an audition no matter what. But it would be like, I'm only going to, I'm going to record it. And if it's not the quality of the first take I want, I'm going to try to learn from that and then come back tomorrow with a different plan. And when mm -hmm. I finally share it, now it's like first take. And it's exactly what you just described. I upped the ante to the point where I'm nervous for that recording because I will be sharing it with people who can judge it. And that's something that has that's actually allowed me to simulate that feeling of like, I need this to be my best because of whatever, whatever uh, I guess, uh, framework I've put up for this particular project, I had to put that much pressure on myself to get me to think, okay, now I'm simulating what that feels mm -hmm. like. How do I build a, a system or a structure that will allow me to be successful? That's great. And you just continue to do it. That's great. I mean, that's exactly what, that's exactly what I mean, where you have to kind of figure out what will create a simulator. It's just like a flight yeah. simulator for, for pilots or, you know, um, astronauts and all that stuff. And by the way, other industries believe that simulators are really important and that, you know, even after you fly a certain amount, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You have yeah. to go back and do some training. And um, yeah, that sounds amazing. Good can for I, you. So can I ask some like, I have, the, I feel like we're almost blasphemous beliefs about some of this stuff. So I'm kind of curious what you think. Do you think that there is a way that you could say a generalized simulation not necessarily it will get to the point where like 
you know, elite this or that is going to work for everybody. But like if someone who is struggling to incorporate simulation, you could give this sort of generalized structure to say, start here. here. This mm -hmm. will work. It may not be perfect, but it will work for what it is and will teach you how to move forward. Do you believe something like that exists? And if so, kind of what would that look like to you? Yes. And I don't and I don't think we talk about it in school. Most professors don't talk about it in school, how, how important this is. One one structure i think and you know everybody who hates recording themselves perfect use recording yourself as a simulation tool to force yourself to feel that uncomfortable this is mm. something that's free you can do it every day if you want do you know what i mean uh, mm -hmm. simulation recordings or recording yourself for simulation purposes is different than recording yourself um to have better ears to hear what you're doing Okay, so simulation recording is you warm up, you don't practice the piece or pieces that you need to uh, be playing, but you, you do warm up, you give yourself that, and then you record. Yeah. Not once you've worked on a piece for an hour and 10 minutes, and you've worked it out and it feels good in your fingers or your face, you know, but <laughs> no, before that, just warm up and then run the piece, you know, record. You can also use those recordings to learn, but you're really doing it more for creating an easy simulation that's cheap. Playing for other people, obviously. Depending on, you know, like you, it doesn't make nervous. Me, it's like horrifying. So, you know, that's kind of my go-to. Um, <laughs> those two things, I think for sure. Um, randomizers i think are really important if for anybody who's on the audition circuit i think randomizers and now they're on computer or apps you know have little, like a little um it's called decision wheel app i mm -hmm. use them for scales i just spin the, the wheel because i'm i don't know i guess it, it forces me to practice certain scales that i don't want to but but you can now i know like what i used to do when i was taking auditions i would put all the pieces in a little pot you know what I mean? And I would just draw out of a hat. Sure, sure. Yeah. Or yeah. I would have my husband draw out of a hat. Now I'd probably do it with a randomizer and boom, you have to do the next one. Um, running, <clears throat> if you can get on, <laughs> there's so much Netflix without commercials, but like Hulu has commercials, for example. I remember preparing for my Richmond audition and um, I really wanted to watch, I think it was the French Open. And so I was like, okay, I want to watch the French Open, but I need to practice. What do I do? You know? And so I made this deal with my husband. I would watch the French Open, but on every commercial break, he had to call different excerpts. That's so it awesome. was like violin was out, watch tennis, you know, run a couple excerpts. So you're watch getting tennis, cold while watching it getting and then cold, just pick yeah. it up and cold yeah. hot. And it should be fun, you know? Like yeah. it doesn't have to be all that serious, but just it gave me that feeling of like, ugh. Yeah, and I'm not quite as warm as I'd like to be. Okay, and you know, and most things in auditions aren't really about what's happening. It's about what accepting what's happening. So yeah. even just accepting, I'm not totally, totally warm. Or so those those things, you know, are easy ones. I I know there are there are other things. You know, getting in in the space, um, getting in different spaces. Like I said, that's why when when I play for people. Uh, you know, now it's often over Zoom, but I try to go to their house. First of all, they're doing me a favor. And second of all, I don't tell them this, but like, I want that different acoustic. I want the, I, I want the weirdness of it. Yeah. Because I would get into these audition spaces and just be like, oh my God, it's so big. Or, oh my God, it's just a room or, you know. Um, 
Can we can we back up just a little bit? Because you said something I think is so important, and I've built so much of my. I have this thing called the Gold Method. It's the way I organize my practice and stuff. And the first, the first, the G is goal oriented, and you know, goal oriented. We all can understand to some degree, right? We can say like, oh, I want to work on this to get better at this, right? But you said something that I think is very. Uh, it, it displays this really well, where you said recording yourself to simulate the feeling of going through it is different than recording yourself to get better ears or to learn. So we have the same exact thing, okay. the same mm-hmm. exact action, but we have two separate goals, right? So it'll affect the way that we think about incorporating it, the way that we go about doing the action. And I think this exists everywhere. And to me, this is like as deep, like this is partially how deep something like goal oriented goes is understanding every sort of level of why you're doing what you're doing so that you can get the most out of it versus I'm just going to turn on my recorder and see what happens. You're saying I've chosen to do this for this specific thing that I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm weak at. So I'm going to do this. I'm kind of curious if you just have thoughts on uh, other areas where you've seen people uh, maybe not be as detailed with the reasons for why they are doing certain things in practice sessions and like how you maybe go about your decision-making process to make sure that everything has a specific purpose that's fulfilling some sort of goal you're trying to reach. Well, I think in general, for a lot of people, goals tend to focus on what, not how. Mm-hmm. Um, and practice goals and it's certainly I was this for decades. Um, practice goals tend to focus on how long, not what is actually, you know, changing during the process. Um, I am, I do have goal setting around certain pieces, you know, get to page two of this, run through that or whatever. But I really try to challenge myself. And this is really what the practice, practice journal, what that book is all about, is to challenge us to dedicate ourselves to process goals. Okay, I don't know. Today could be, I'm going to be kinder to myself. <laughs> I mean, that's actually hard to do. Or, sure. um, you know, uh, l- let's talk about recording, for example, right? Recording, we know, is very effective. Um, no one ever I have met has said uh, they love recording themselves. So what's tricky about it is psychological, is the psychology of it, right? But there are things that you can do. Let's say you have a goal of like, I want to record myself in more in, in uh, practice, which is a process goal. It's the way that you work. Then you have to figure out like, okay, how are you going to get there besides just torturing yourself? And then there are little things, little nuanced things that you can do that make it easier, that don't degrade your confidence because we don't want to degrade confidence in practice. Fine to be critical and to be observing, but it's not good to just like crush your sense of self-esteem because that's going to really hurt you on the stage and lifelong anyway. So let's say you want to record more in practice or record it all in practice, as may be the case for many people. Um, Just having like a little rule of saying every time I record, I'm only going to record four bars or eight bars, never a whole piece. And I'm always going to record it twice at least twice. So I'm going to record, listen back, I don't know, maybe fix a couple things or whatever, record again. And having that discipline to always do what I call hamburger recordings, always like sandwiched, so that over time, your relationship with recording is, oh, yes, I can see my progress. Because the second recording is always better. 
I mean, even if you didn't practice at all, the second one is always better. You give yourself that gift and do it that way, small little recordings over time, rather than, okay, I've learned the piece. I am ready to record. You know, I mean, first of all, most of the work's already in the bank. It's a little late to take a lot of things back, but it's it's crushing psychologically. And I've done it that way. Um, It leads to low self-esteem. You discover many problems. Then you feel like an idiot because some of those problems you should have known about earlier, you know, and that's how just the process isn't helping you. And, and so I'm really interested in, yes, what are the goals, but what are the goals of, of in general as a player that you want? You know, do you want to be more ballsy or do you want to, I don't know, uh, have more articulation or I don't, I don't know, like, you know, cause I don't know trumpet that well, like what, what those kinds of goals are. But yeah. then like the next thing is like, okay, how? I mean, I've made some significant progress doing really wackadoodle things, really wackadoodle things, you know, yeah. wearing earplugs for two weeks. I did that once because somebody <laughs> told me that, you know, my sound didn't have enough balls. That's where this came from. I was like, really? And so I put in earplugs for two weeks and played Fortissimo and I got a bigger sound. Interesting. You know, uh, so well, I'm, a I'm, few, go ahead. I was going to say there's a, there's a few things about what you just said though that are interesting the one that i would like to stick on is that you did it for two weeks right sometimes i think we say like oh i gotta fix this problem and then we do this thing for a day or maybe two days and we're like it's not working this isn't fixing the problem and then you just give up but in my opinion any meaningful change we're seeking to see in our playing will take a length of time for our bodies to figure out how does this work? How do I do it? To have a relation, a mental relationship with understanding how we created that in the first place so that we're looking at a length of time for something to develop. It could be two weeks. It could be a month. We could be looking at six months for some major type of change we're looking for. And I think accepting that fact of practice allows us to then release some of the perfection that we expect on any given practice session because we know we're sort of building towards something that we want, you know, six months from now or whatever. And so that that's to me, that was an important thing to say that I did it for two weeks, even though it seems innocuous because it may have taken two weeks for you to actually begin to have a relationship with what that meant normally, not just with earplugs in. Right, right. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I always just think about... Um, how can we reward ourselves for the activities in practice, in practice, not for how we sound? Because, you know, we, we're going to have good days and bad days. And God knows if we can figure out why that sometimes happens, you know. But if if our goal is, um, I'm going to, like for me, often I have to set goals around, um, I want to do more big picture because I tend to still be kind of a navel gazer and like bar by bar and, you know, uh, then you get in a concert and it's really disorienting when you have to, you know, play the stuff. And like, I, I, I'm very bad about running my repertoire. So, so I have to set goals around that, you know, um, I know other people who have to set goals around, or sometimes I set goals around movement. I'm going to move more in practice, this, this particular practice. And it really is like experimenting. I think when the goal is always, I, concrete, like, uh, you know, I want to be able to play this piece at, I don't know, 88 to the dotted quarter or something. I don't think that's our most creative work. I think if we can 
be more about if we can label, okay, today's a creativity day. Um, let me learn all my hardest licks backwards. Now, maybe that'll do nothing. Maybe. But I don't think so. There is mm. always something you discover when you make creativity and doing something differently, going out on a limb, being willing to waste time by doing things a different way. For me, I've always learned things like that. Like I, um, at some point when I was practicing, this is many years ago, I was having trouble with slurs that it would be the equivalent for you guys for breath. I was always running out of breath. I was always running out of bow. Mm -hmm. And so just, I was thinking back to my high school, um, swim coach and I'll explain in a second, but I basically started just adding on beats to everything. I just made all my slurs longer by like half a bar. And you know what? I did that for one day. Next day I had enough bow. Yeah. Interesting. It was like so easy. I just had to make it much harder than it was. And sure, then I sure. felt that the next day I felt that relief of like, oh, you mean I only have to slur for four beats? It's like <laughs> anyone can do this, you know? And that's yeah. not something I would have come to, I think, if I hadn't been thinking, okay, well, how else could I do this? Sure. What else could I do? And you have to, I have a student who um, stood on one leg as a, cre I, I do a lot of creativity assignments in my studio, you know, like try something wackadoodle. She had this huge breakthrough in posture by standing on a, one leg for many days practicing. Now, this is not ever something I would tell a student to do. But for her, when she was standing on one leg, she actually lined up the top of her body better because otherwise she would have fallen She'd over. Have fallen. Yeah, yeah. And so in that moment, in her own process, she learned something. And then when she was able to use both legs again, she felt more stable. She had more breath. She opened up, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so... So I'm always really interested in kind of what if in practice and that there is no wasted experiments in the practice room. The only waste is if you don't experiment at all and you're just bulldozing through or or you tend to do the same thing over and over again, you know, like the same routine, working it up, you know, working up the tempo, because when you play it, you won't be able to do that, you know, you're not going to have a half hour of working into a piece slowly. Yeah, I, I completely agree, especially with the experimentation part of it. But one of the struggles then I I find in my practice is basically how we manage the experimentation part of it and then sort of the I am ingraining habit, the way I would like things to go when I perform, uh, because I believe that we need sort of multiple days of just doing it correctly, so to speak, right? So I think the experimentation phase comes when we sort of may not know what correct looks like. So we just try things until we find whatever this reality looks like, right? Of correct, whatever that means. And then we move into ingraining it. So I'm kind of curious if you have thoughts on uh, what that has looked like in your practice and the way that you've um, taught your students and just sort of from a psychology aspect, like how do we make this, this transition? How do we know when we've experimented enough? Because I think people could possibly get lost in the experimentation part of it and saying like, and sort of never mo move towards being able to uh, start to make uh, meaningful progress on a piece of music in general. Okay, so I guess um, <clears throat> I always think of creativity as something that we apply to sort of all the levels of, let's say, learning a piece, okay? Um, let's say we're in the acquisition stage, you know, what are the notes, what are the rhythms, right? Like really nuts and bolts. Mm 
Um, in that sense, you know, creativity could be, okay, these are the pitches. Um, maybe I don't have rhythm with it yet. I'm just going after pitch right now. Let me play these, you know, backwards. Let me play every other note. You know, let me play every three note. This is like how I'm becoming familiar with what my hands or in your case, you know, what your face has to do. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, later creativity, let's say, you know, you're at that point where the piece, you're putting it together, you're running it. It's you're more in the refinement stage, right? Then yeah. creativity is going to mean something different, right? It's how can I be freer here? Um, okay, what if I exaggerate, you know, the high and low dynamics? Like how... How small can I play and still come up with a tone that I'm not embarrassed about? Do you know what I mean? Where's that yeah, edge? Yeah. So I guess like I always think of, um, I really want to see your, I need to study up on your gold, you know, practice. I always, um, my acronym is CROTO, Creativity, Resilience, Optimism, Discipline, and Organization. But these are all, again, how, not what, you know? Of course. And so I always think, at every level, like I, I try to encourage my students to practice these dispositions, like the D in Croto is discipline. Okay. What are you going to do today for discipline? Discipline meaning having laser focus, not necessarily practicing a lot. That might be it. I don't know. It might yeah. be running your program three times in a row to see if you have the stamina to get through it. Do you know what I mean? Now, Absolutely. early on in the piece, discipline usually means don't go too fast. Don't try to put it together too, you know what I mean? Discipline Absolutely. at the beginning and discipline at the at the end of a process are very, very different. Discipline and resilience at the end definitely means playing for people, you know? Yeah. Um, resilience, mean for me, resilience is choosing to take on risk. Um, for me, I do a lot of early recording so that I don't learn things in a way that I don't want that takes resilience though because I'd, I'd rather not i mean if i'm perfectly honest i'd rather not record myself <laughs> yeah you know and then i do not record i personally everybody can you know has to find their way but i don't record myself like the week before a concert i stop i have to get out of that self-critical mindset but at that point when i'm thinking about resilience then it would be um can i run the show in my dress you know what I, I mean? I see. I see. Yeah. So, so, so I take sort of the basic, the attribute, if you will, and I'm sure it's the same with gold, and and they mean different things depending on where you are in the process. A little bit, yeah. I, mine's mine's a little bit different. Um, well, we'll talk about. I mean, I'm happy to share it with you here, um, and you can kind of see how it intermingles. Before we do that, what you're saying, this is going to be a semantics issue. The way I think about what you're talking about is basically what is the focus depending on where you're at in the process. So when you're first learning a piece of music, like we shouldn't really be concerned with whether we can run the piece or not because no. like, you have time to get there. And I think some And in fact, time, running it would be would be counterproductive. Of course, it, yeah. You know. But I have practiced from a place of I got to prove to myself I can run this, I can get there as fast as possible so then I can run it over and over and over and over again so uh, I can feel that I ha I've got this thing, but I've I've broken myself of that by this point where I recognize that the only thing that matters is how I play on the day that it matters for a particular performance. This is why I gave myself that etude recording thing is because then it's like everything leading up to that time where I actually record it, none of that matters. It's all to, it's all a, 
an opportunity for me to learn what more about how to present this thing at a higher level each time. And so depending on where I am in the learning process, I'm focused on different things. Most of the time I'm focused at the beginning on how I, how I want to go about playing the trumpet to produce the desired result. But at a certain point, like you're saying, I try to shift out of that into uh, maybe I'm focusing on this one cue, keeping the air forward on my lips, but that will then hopefully I've ingrained the way I want to go about doing it. So everything is contained within that one cue. Mm -hmm. So if I do that one cue, everything else follows suit. And then I'm more concerned with just making sure as you're talking about in that, I call it the peaking phase, right? right? It's workout terminology, but I call it the peaking phase where you're more concerned about music, presenting a musically refined product that people will enjoy listening to. I'm not concerned with that at the beginning of the learning process at all. To some degree, I'm actually not really concerned about that until later on because I believe if I've really ingrained the habits of how I want to sort of the nuts and the bolts of executing, I find I'm able to ask those musical questions with more freedom because I can ask with more consistency from from like repetition to repetition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um do you have any thoughts on any of what I just said? I, I yeah, could run I mean, into the well, gold method, but I don't me, want to talk. To, <laughs> yeah, what, what strikes me is that everybody is a little bit different, but there are these elements that we need to keep in mind, you know. I to- Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree with that. This is actually where this gold method came from. The gold method is G, your practice should be goal-oriented. And these four pillars that I'm about to describe to me are things that every great practicer does. Like it may not look exactly the same way, but these pillars are there. One, your practice must be goal-oriented. Like you got to know what you're trying to accomplish when you're doing it. And again, as we talked about, it doesn't inherently mean I want to learn this piece of music. It could be I want to explore what's going on here so I can gain a better functional understanding of like the music I'm working on. The goal will change depending on where you're at. The O is your practice must have an optimal starting place. I believe this because I don't, I believe that generally speaking, we should try to ingrain the way we want to play from the beginning. Yes, because what you, as Pam Frank, there's a famous violinist who says, you get what you train for. Totally, it's exactly, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So it's more efficient. I want to build confidence with that practice session. Essentially, I want to be able to say like, I've done this. This really came from the question of what if, like, how do you think you'd feel mentally and physically if you never played it wrong? But that 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 predicates a, a few like there's a presupposition there that you know how to imprint correct from the very beginning, right? Which mm-hmm. is again we can get to that at a different point, but an optimal starting place. So where can you? For me, that's about where can you play the way you want to play ninety percent of the time or more. If like you're if you're missing more than ninety percent of the notes, or if you're like things are out of tune, like we need to figure out how to adjust the difficulty level. Right, this is a bit of flow state kind of yeah. kind of talk. The L is it must have a logical progression. Then we just need a way to make sure that we logically move from day to day in a way where we can maintain that skill to challenge ratio. Right, like it's not too hard, it's not too easy but that we are moving toward our particular goal. Usually the goal is tempo related. We're saying here's, I can perform the piece at the level I want, but at half tempo. Mm -hmm. How do I progress towards being able to keep those skills as I get to the full tempo? And the D is what we were talking about, the defined time frame. And so if I were to learn a piece of music, generally speaking, I would run a three week program twice rather than just working for six weeks. Because what that does is about halfway through the process, I've finished working on it. And so mm-hmm. I then I get all of that feedback about what I wish was different. And then I just go back to the beginning, half tempo type stuff. But now I'm in infu- I know the piece much better, but I can then infuse those refined details. So you know, what I mean, I get two yeah, sort of learning. It, yeah, you're letting it bake in the oven. 
Yeah, and I get that's like two learning processes mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of one. Love it. Yeah, so that's kind of how I've come to do that. And it's sort of with auditions, I basically put mock auditions like in the middle of the program where you may not be ready, but you want that information about how your practice is going so that you can then start, just continue on with the process of this sort of under-tempo work, working it up and stuff. But then you have that musical uh, idea of what's working, what you might want to tweak with your work. This is how I learn on my etudes. I run a two-week program and then I start over and it takes about another week. And then I'm ready to perform it at what I would consider to be my highest. You know, it's like drafting writers. Totally. You know, do the same thing. Yeah. So that's that's what the gold method is, right? And so it doesn't have to be my version of it, right? But being able to say, I know what my goal is. I can start with good habits. I know how I'm going to get to where the goal is. And I know about how long I'm going to take to pursue this goal. Then I will assess and see, do I want to continue pursuing it? Do I have a different goal? Things like that. Yeah. See, it's interesting because you and I, it's, it's, <laughs> we're like sort of perfect marriage right now of ideas because I think your your ideas about practice are, you know, first of all, 100% spot on, but they're they're about the mechanics and they have mm-hmm. to do with time and the realities of the practice room. Like you have to have that in your body, in the physical body for a certain amount of time. And you need to go through drafting and all that stuff. I think my concepts tend to be um, way more general and have to do more with what are the things that people can do to generally feel like they're being efficient, empowered, and are having some fun, like joyful. So they're more um, psychological uh, sort of prompts and tools like this week, Record yourself twice every day. <laughs> it doesn't sure, matter sure. where you are, like for example, in your process, if it's if you're at the end or the beginning, right? right. Or um, you know, I have prompts for my students that none of these I don't think are in the journal that was published, but like, you know, we do things like um adopt a performer week where they adopt a performer on YouTube and try to emulate them, the way they look, the way they sound, everything about them. It's just a sort of uh, you know, or exercise to, well, first of all, to get them to listen really intently, but also to um, just see what they can learn by adopting somebody else's gestures, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So they're like, mine is much more general, if that makes any sense. And it's not time dependent on your learning this program or you're learning, you know, these things. And I think it comes sort of about primarily from the psychological perspective. And my obsession with technology yes it's for excellence it's that's really how it started like when i first started um messing around at vcu with technology we did um we did some stuff in the motion capture lab which is you know kind of suit up like animation um we did some vr we've done recently like we do also i do a lot of apps and but what i noticed besides i was i was doing that with students so that they would learn more about their body because we have the we have a huge advantage as string players in that everything is visible mm-hmm. right for trumpet players so much of what happens is internal <laughs> for us any violin teacher can come up to you and be like yeah that's probably not working because your elbow is a little high there you know which is huge um so i was doing it for excellence but what i noticed is that every time i got students in the lab hey let's mess around with this hey let's mess around with that let's uh let's use uh, microsoft connect to you know see our body in space they were happier they were more lighthearted. they went out on a limb more they were much less embarrassed in front of other people 
basically they had a great time. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, wait, we're here so that they'll learn, you know, this one thing and like we're after excellence. But the result ended up being that they felt lighter in their work. And when they felt lighter in their work, they were able to dig deeper and do more groundbreaking work that I was asking them to do. And so that's how that whole psychology thing sort of got started because I, I've, you know, in my life had a fair share of practice shame, performance shame, like all that stuff. But I thought it was just me, you know? Well, if I was a more dedicated musician, I, I'd have a better time in the practice room. You know, I just, I thought everybody else was, you know, didn't have this problem or most people that I just wasn't dedicated enough. But once I could see it in generations of students, oh, wow, you just change one little thing. You allow them to see their body in a refracted space. It would be kind of the equivalent of you guys. Like if you, you know, let's say, what do you call it? Um, Air, keep your air more to the front. Yeah, air forward, yeah. Right, air forward. Like what if there was a device that actually measured that for you? Yeah, I would be right? very interested in that. You'd be like super happy, but you also might be like, oh, that's so interesting. Now, let me try that again and do it this way and see if it measures it more forward. You see how it, it takes the emphasis in that minute off of, well, how good did that sound, <laughs> you know? Sure, and it's sure. like, it, it creates, and so that's how I sort of got into the psychology of practice was more or less by accident. I was after the excellence of physical form because musicians basically just move their bodies to create sound. That's what we do, right? We manipulate our body in space. I was interested in being able to measure that, but what I noticed in a lot of those experiments is that the whole studio psychologically would lift or sink, depending on what we were doing. You know, if if we had the right kind of experiments and we're just messing around in a lab, they'd be all jazzed up. When can we do that again? That was so cool. They would practice more. And if I did uh, terrible things to them, like this, <laughs> this week, everybody has to record their lesson and then replay the lesson back and take notes and submit those to me. Now, pedagogically, okay, it's probably good to watch your whole lesson back and take notes. But psychologically, that wasn't nearly as fun for them. So I'm not going to say that, you know, students should never do it, but I think they're able to do that really difficult, resilient work when they're having some more fun with what they're doing. And when they feel like their practice dojo is a place not only for hard, you know, blood, sweat and tears, which obviously have to be there, but also sometimes, you know, the place where there's some delight. I I think that allows us to do better work. What's your relationship with delayed gratification in in practice? Like what you're describing to me sounds very like in a moment we want to bring some joy, but the idea of delayed gratification being we're basically going to delay all of those feelings of joy for a greater feeling of joy later. Like how does that balance I in think, there? I think we have to do both. You know, we have to certainly if your gratification is blowing through a piece when you really shouldn't. <laughs> You got to right. keep that gratification. <laughs> you have to keep that at bay. Yeah. You you must. But you can substitute other little things, right? Like small things you can have. Well, for us, we can we get to in- eat and drink in the practice room. Um, you can limit your hardworking sessions to twenty minutes, for example. Really, really digging deep for twenty minutes, and then you know, for I don't know, ten minutes, you can play an old piece just for fun. 
That's yeah, not going to do any damage. You can insert that because you're a human being, you know, yeah. and you need that. You can also just be like, you know what? 45 minutes, I'm getting that feeling where I'm like, this sucks. Um, either leave the practice room or better leave before that happens. Because we yeah. know from research that people, however they end their experience is what they associate with that experience. So if you push yourself in the practice room until you are just worn out, you hate yourself, it's not working, you physically now nosedived, particularly this is true for, for brass players, you're psychologically frustrated, and now you're putting away your horn. Over time, that's a certain relationship with practice that doesn't need to be there. You could just, yeah. you're better off to, you know, have like a, a egg timer, you know, to set a timer, not a ticking one, but just like, I will not practice past 40 because I know myself after 40 and just get all slumpy and like, Ugh, God, this sucks. <laughs> it's not my best work. I'm not really playing musically at that point. I'm kind of worn out. I'm better off to call it before that. Go, you know, take a walk, do something else and come back. So those, so I think there is a lot of delayed gratification when it comes to practice, but it doesn't mean that we have to turn the practice room into a place we hate. Absolutely. No, I think we very much agree with that. And I think these sort of systems I've built, I think I, for me, what the, the value for me, I can only speak to my experience, although it's been the experience of my clients and stuff too, is that it just turns the practice room from this thing, like you see yourself getting better, right? Because we have like, we have a structure from day to day where we yes. can see I'm doing this differently than I did before. And it becomes this thing where you're just seeing the progress you're making. And it becomes this like, in my opinion, empowering, empowering experience. Yes. And, so, and, it, and then I was just going to say like, it's motivating for me when I can see that I can get better, even if it's a little bit, right? Because especially at the level that you're playing at a professional musician, the progress slows down as opposed to when you first start, when you can make more. Mm -hmm. Like it's motivating to see that for me. And it becomes like, whether it's for me, whether it's sort of fun in there, it's gratifying. And, yes. and I leave feeling like I got stuff done. This is another big, big, big conversation I think needs to be had. I will ask you this question as soon as you respond, but this idea of like what makes the work worth it? How do we judge that? Because I think that's really what makes it fun or not fun or gratifying or not gratifying is leaving feeling like you accomplished something that you set out to accomplish. But there, there is no... I think for most musicians, there is no greater motivator than success. Yeah. You know, it's, and and by success we mean efficiency, right? Did you did you get a lot done in a small amount of time? Can is your progress visible? Can you see that you've made progress? If you don't have that, um, that's a big problem. That's why like efficiency, empowerment, and joy. It's in that order. Efficiency is key. Um. Empowerment, I think, is really important because of the stage. And because over the over a lifetime, I do know musicians, musicians, and I think I used to be one of them, that would never allow themselves anything that wasn't what I considered productive. I never played through an old piece. I never played along with YouTube. Um, I never did anything that was fun in the practice room. That over time, I think, uh, you know, leads you into not liking practice. That's why mm -hmm. I kind of, those, the, the efficiency, empowerment, and joy, the reason I'm, those three is what I'm interested in is because I, purposely because I think they have, they conflict with each other, you know? Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that idea of it. 
Um, so we already talked about recording, right? Recording is highly efficient, but how do we manage it so that it doesn't drain our sense of empowerment? Because empowerment is yeah. also important, right? Um, you know, having fun in the practice room, fun is not the right word quite, but feeling some joy, having some lighter moments, I think is also important. But how do we do that without just wasting our time and not being a good practicer? Right. And so that's yeah. why, like, a lot of my recommendations that have to do with joy have to do with space. You know, use, I use a lot of apps to practice, right? The spin wheel or certain recording apps because they make it easier. Um, I, because again, we're visible, we, I use like gymnastics apps, you know, for recording ourselves or for not recording yourself, like video delay where you can see yourself, but there's no sound. Um, you know, kind of gamifying practice in any way that we can, right? Like, you know, pulling for my students, I have like ping pong balls that are labeled with a little message. This time, you know, do it this way. And they just pull <laughs> out of the, and somehow like it just makes it a little bit more gamified. But yeah. I'm not, we're not talking about fun to the point of you do whatever or blow through it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think everybody's different. Some people can can be very efficient, don't need all that don't need as much fun. Some people are just the opposite. They need to feel more joy. I, ha I have some students who really, if I just allow that, you know, why don't you get out? Um, I don't know what you play last semester that wh why don't you just brush up on that a little bit? I'm, I'm manipulative actually in that instance, because I know I'm trying to introduce joy into their practice routine by allowing them to play something that is already well worked up and that makes them feel confident. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, going over old recordings to make that progress visible. What you said is 1000% on. You you have to see your own progress. And the habits that we bring to practice, we have to make sure that we are not um, being so draconian that we can't see our own progress. And sometimes yeah. we need a little help with that by you know either journaling, going back to some old stuff, um, I don't know, playing happy birthday with your new found full tone. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Little things like that. And then I don't think it's a waste of time. And I think, I think the practice room is always going to be full of paradoxes. You know, big picture, small picture, be critical, be confident, you know, um, work it down, you know, work it down into basic elements, run the whole piece. I think that's sort of inherent in what we do. Yeah, I... I, I couldn't agree more. It's very fascinating to talk to you about this for me because to use myself as an example, when I first started making these programs, I needed to know if, if they worked. And one of the things that I would define worked would be what would it look like if I did this for a year, you know? What would it look like if I, I basically, my fundamental routine stuff, I practice in, in a month, right? So I basically, if we want to use the terminology you've used, like I sort of, put fun off to the side for a month, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I'm like super, super dedicated to improving the aspects of these whatever exercises and the way that I've designed them to address certain skills. After a month, I can ask myself, you know, I would take a week off every now and then, right, of a program. And I would just like play etudes that I wanted to play, you know, like I would allow myself to, to go off. Um, but typically, generally speaking, I was on these programs for a month-ish. And in some cases, I would have left, let's say, one or two exercises from a particular skill 
in there for an entire year or like eight months, right? So I'm playing the same exercise for like eight months, but I'm bumping up some objective, usually the tempo, usually it was like an articulation speed type thing, just, a, you know, two beats per minute per month, you know, like hardly anything, but that compounded over the long term can make some pretty significant progress. And about five weeks ago, I or six weeks ago, I didn't renew a program. So I haven't been on a fundamental program for like five or six weeks. Now, at first, the freedom was great. The, the freedom was awesome and it was fun. But now it's like almost in my playing, I can feel that I've left that sort of structure and I'm ready to go back and get back mm -hmm. on it. And so I totally agree with you. I think that balance, that balance, everybody will have to find for themselves. But I think picking one, basically saying like, I'm going to be dedicated for a month and see how I feel at the end of it. You kind of have to say like, I'm going to do this for a month because that's what I chose. And even if I don't like it after three weeks, I still need to continue on through that full month. And then I know that about myself. And this is where I think this is like a big sort of crucial aspect of what I believe about practice is we just don't view practice as a way to commit to learning about the process because we won't, we want it to be gratifying in the moment. Moment. And but it is we, not designed for that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But not only is it not designed for that, but we can't actually learn what processes do work for us and which are gratifying because we won't see something all the way through because sometimes the gratifying part is that it worked at mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. end, you know, and you won't know that until you get to the end. So how do you, as someone who is super interested, especially in the psychology of practice, encourage people to be able to work through sort of the periods where it may feel like it's not working to get to the point where all of that work that seems like it's random and not working will coalesce into the moment where everything clicks? Right. Um, I think the, the best thing, I think, especially uh, for students, I, this this seems to work the best for my students. And I, I think it's just human nature. When you have something that's really difficult for yourself, for whatever reason, whether it's sticking to a routine or showing up at a regular time or whatever, um, working in teams is really, really helpful. Um, you know, that's what the gym buddy concept is all about. And we are no different as musicians. Now that we, um, you know, have Zoom, you can actually just make a practice date with somebody in Zoom, put your, both of them on mute and say, okay, we're going to do our whatever those fundamentals are for 20 minutes side by side. You know, get get a partner or two that are interested in a similar outcome and you will not be missing those dates. It, we're just, I don't know why, we're socially hardwired. So that's like an accountability act. Um, you can also, you know, you can up it and and exchange files with people, right? Like I did that last summer. The first summer, you know, after COVID, um, a good friend of mine, we just exchanged a movement of Bach every week. And it was just like, we knew we needed something or else mm -hmm. we would totally lose our identity. And so, you know, come Friday, we would send each other a recording. Sometimes we would beg, can I have a couple more days? I just need, <laughs> and it was fine, you know, and then we would record for each other and then we would get on and have some social time be like, oh, well, you know, we would give each other some critical feedback, nice feedback, but um, accountability structures, people, you know, and I'm not talking about posting on social media. I really am talking about take a good friend who also has a similar goal, whether it's that same routine or whether it's something else and hold each other's feet to the fire. Um, celebrate when you've done it. 
whatever is most difficult for you to do, these are none of these are my own ideas. This is just social science research. Um, attach it to a habit that you already have. Yeah. So lunch and then blah. Because you know what? You probably eat lunch every day. Most people. Yeah. <laughs> Some people don't eat breakfast, but you know. Um, for me, whatever, like whatever is most difficult for me, I have to do first. Everybody's different, but you know, willpower drains over time. It's it's a finite resource. So the the later you put your difficult, psychologically difficult thing, the less likely it will be done. You mean in the day, right? Later in the, in day. the day. Yeah, yeah. Later in your own later in your own uh, process could be so like Let's say, let's say you really like chocolate, right? And I put a chocolate cake in front of you for an hour and I say, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. Okay. And then, and then I say, okay, Ryan, now run through your technical blah, 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 which, you know, you hate to do. It's going to be harder for you after you've resisted the chocolate cake for an hour. I see. Then it will be if we hadn't done that. So the more willpower you've forced yourself to do, the less you will have. So let's say you practice and then do an hour of email blah, stuff you don't want to do. It will be very difficult for you to come back to practice. But if you practice, you ignore your email, go outside and do some other things, you will have an easier time doing something difficult in practice because you haven't drained that capacity to, I guess, resist temptation you yeah. know, to do nothing. Because I think the same kind of principle in a practice session itself exists, right? So yes. in a sort of a smaller section, and I learned this from training in the gym, we call it's called the priority principle, where, you know, the, the training the back is a great example, right? The back has two major functions. Like if you raise your hand and pull, like do a pull up, that's one function. And the other function is to like pull things towards you. So we have a vertical and a horizontal, right? And they do different things. The horizontal will build sort of the thickness of your back and the, the vertical will build sort of the width of your back. Well, depending on what your goal is, you'll like if your goal is to widen your back, well, you'll start with a vertical pull because you want the most amount of strength and the most amount of focus for that. If your goal is to get thickness in your back, you'll start with a horizontal pull, right? There are right. exceptions That's right. to this So there's rule. fatigue. There's fatigue exactly, of right. the muscles. Mm -hmm. And fatigue of the mind and everything. So I try to bring the same thing generally into my practice sessions too, which is minus a warm-up, which will always exist. You generally want to do the things you care about the most first in a practice yes. session because if you get fatigued uh, physically or mentally, it's going to be easier to let that practice session go when all you have is a few things that, ah, maybe it doesn't matter that much if I do it today. It's not that big of a, as opposed to I saved my most important concerto for the end, but I'm so tired, you know, like right. it'll be I, easier to let. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes do like warm up and then all my hardest spots, like across all the repertoire, just the yeah. real nail biters, you know what I mean? And then do some refinement work. And, um, you know, you can also put a relief valve in there, you know what I mean? Which is either break or, I don't know, play something by ear, just do a little jam, you know, again, let that tension and that concentration go, you know, because concentrated practice is very difficult. You're trying to manipulate your body to do something else than what it wants to do naturally, basically. So yeah, yeah. 100%. Totally. And then I'm curious, I actually did an Instagram poll on this because it started with me thinking like, I can't, I take a day off every week. 
of practice every single day does or every single week does not really matter. Some days, some weeks I'll take off two days if it just works out that way in my schedule. Um, I prefer not to do that, but I for sure take one. And I think I've, I did some Instagram polling and people are, I think most people are willing to, and they accept that a day off is a good thing, but some people are like, I don't want to do it. Um, and it, and I'm kind of curious, like, what's your, what's your take? Like, do you think that it should be, you should take a day off? Do you think it's dependent on people? What is your take on that? I think a day off is healthy. I, I do. Yeah. I do, you know, easy for me to say I'm 50 and, you know, I've <laughs> had a lot of times of not taking a day off and then hit the wall and wanted to stop being in music. You know what I mean? Uh, didn't play for six weeks at all. Really was like, I need to do something else. So so part of what I'm saying, again, is for psychological reasons. Absolutely. Um, I think when people don't want to, it's usually because they feel like they haven't done enough during the week. And then I think that is the thing that needs to be addressed. What yeah. is enough? How can you form habits um, that make you work in such a way that you're proud of it? Do you know what I mean? During the week? Absolutely. Again, prioritizing how. Are you are you practicing regularly? Are you doing the right amount of time for you? Um, you know, are you playing for people? Are you get, getting feedback? I mean, those are things that are way better than than an extra practice session. Way better. They're just much more efficient, but they take more discipline and more daring to do. Um, and if that's not happening, do you know what I mean? Or if it's some kind of fear of, I'll lose my chops, you know, that one day, um, then I would I would say, it's, I have a funny story about when I was in camp that, you know, I didn't know he was right at the time. But then I would say, you need to have some time when you let, you need to let the face rest. I think it's really important for brass players. Yeah. Um, but even for string players to, you know, clear that, clear your head, be inspired. You know, there are other ways to practice. You can listen to a recording. You can watch somebody on YouTube. You can you can study the score, but let your body rest. I am a big fan of that. Of course, I was, you know, again, injured and had a lot of issues, but I'm I'm a I'm a fan of rest. However, you need to manipulate that or make make it psychologically comfortable to to create some rest or maybe it's a half practice day if you want to start with that. But I, I think yeah. it's important. I actually totally agree. And one of the reasons I heard a lot was someone would feel that this like the, the my skills would diminish, right? I take a day off and I come back and it doesn't feel great. And like my my in my mind, I think like, well, we should address that. Taking one day off should not kill your ability to play. Like that's a non-sustainable May, I mean, it seems like an, like an, I said this before, like an innocuous thing to say. Oh, I just feel like I don't want to take but a day what, off. What but what if like, you just what's need to the long term? Well, also, like, what's the long-term ramification of that statement? Like, that's what I care about more. Like, yeah, maybe in the short term, it's completely fine. But, like, what if you take a day out? What if you're forced to, you know, like, and you're in a job? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to freak out, you know? Like, well, right. We that, yeah. yeah, that was the story I was going to tell. I used to have at uh, Brevard Music Center, where I was when I was a teenager, and my lessons were at 8 a.m. on Fridays. And Thursday was big party night at Brevard. I don't know if it's still like that, but good, <laughs> good Lord, like... It was serious, serious party time. And uh, I was I was really not awake for those lessons. And I was like, you know, Mr. Caesar, is there any other time that I can, ha I just, I can't function, you know? I've gotten like no sleep. And he was like, nope, it's eight o'clock on Fridays and the day will come when when you will have to play unwarmed. Because I was like, I, I don't have a chance to warm up and I really would like to warm up for my lessons. And he said, 
The day will come when you will play professionally, unwarmed up at 8 a.m., and then you'll be thanking me for this. You know, and I was like, what? (laughs) I can't tell you the number of times I've had to go in, either because I've had small, you know, kids and there's been some disaster or I've gotten lost on the way to a gig and like I'm sitting concertmaster or where it's like, nope, you didn't get to warm, you didn't get to warm up. You need to have your head together to be able to do that now. So, um, you know, you gain something. You lose that yeah. little bit, just like you said, but you gain something in the long-term confidence and you get that day rest, which I, which yeah, I do I think, agree. you know. Everybody's got to find their own way. But if you if you are a person who hasn't tried a day of rest consecutively, like, you know, Ryan, like you're saying, like a month, maybe two months, you know, try it and see, just try it out. You're not losing anything, you know, and just see how that influences your work. And if, if you know, you guys are right and you just, ah, oh, it has to be seven days a week. Okay, <laughs> go back to it, you know? Yeah, right, right. If you know that for yourself, completely fine. I actually have no problem with that at all. But I think some people are operating under a misconception that they've never they've never experimented with. They just assume that it is something. Or maybe they took one day off and then they came back. I mean, I have examples of taking an entire week off of playing. And then I would come back. I did this right before an Easter gig once. I went on a camping trip and did not bring my instruments. This is sophomore year where my skills were not as developed. It was not as consistent. I came back Saturday night for a... So, and we had Sunday morning Easter and I we had to rehearse Saturday night because I was gone the whole week before. And I picked up my trumpet and I started to warm up and it felt like a completely foreign object in my face. Mm-hmm. It was as if I had never played the trumpet and I could still do it, but it felt horrible. And I was like, this was a mistake. <laughs> like I have made a huge mistake. And then the next day I played Easter and it wasn't, didn't feel amazing, but I more or less still sounded like me. And it was like, oh. As my teacher what? used to say, only 10% worse than usual. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And to me, it, it just begs the point that it's like, what is our, like, Really, the question we have to ask is just what's the relationship or the instrument that it fits into our entire life? That's really what it is. If it's like, if if your instrument, you feeling like you have lost your skill for a day or something like that is a big deal. Like we have to get these, in my opinion, priorities in balance a little bit because like it's just there are other things that are important. And in the long run, like let's say you played like you just had a whole month of like perfect days in a row. Like who cares, you know? Like what does that gain you in the long run? Like what matters is, is our practice teaching us things that we can apply to our overall Life. like learning of repertoire so that when we perform, we have confidence. Like that's what our practice is supposed to do. It's not supposed to like say, I can play perfectly for this many days in a row. So yeah, I'm and are you go. growing? Are you yeah, growing right. in new ways rather than uh, playing at your quote, you know, peak every day? Yeah. I think we're more interested, long-term, we're more interested in growth, right? We should you know, be, I think. Uh, not just like, oh, okay, I'm in good shape today. You know, physically good shape. I can I can execute what I did yesterday. Um, so I find that to be a difficult aspect of having a job is, that's like the pandemic was this interesting space where I had as much time as I wanted to get better at whatever I wanted. But when you're trying to manage a job on top of that, you're there's just a sacrifice you have to make because you sort of maintenance is part of what you do, you know, and making sure you're ready for the things, exactly what you said that you're not in control of, that you don't get to decide. And then on top of that, you have to figure, well, how am I going to, I'm sort of a believer that you, 
this is why structure is super important to me too, is you can sort of structure in, even if it's like 10 minutes a day, you can structure in something that you can see is objectively moving you forward in some way that matters to you. So even if it's not this optimal, every single thing I'm playing is moving me forward in all of these ways, even if it's 10 minutes, you still see that you're in control of part of what you're doing. And you'll see a month later, six months later, that that little bit of 10 minute work still produced growth that was meaningful in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's just a little rant. I, I want to, before we end this episode, uh, we've been, this has been an amazing chat and I can already tell we just need to have a, a another one at some point because there's just so much to cover. I have so many things, but uh, I want to, I want you to talk about the the practice journal because I want people to know what that is in case they're interested in checking it out and like what was the genesis behind making it and what you feel like it can, what kinds of things it can fulfill in somebody's practice session and who is it for, all those kinds of things. Sure. Sure. So it is, um, it's for musicians, you know, of all instruments and all levels, I like to say, although it, it seems to be more popular with the, um, I would say the everyday practicers, you know, people who are practicing, not just, you know, showing up at a social function and playing. So serious, serious musicians, I would say. Um, how it got started was, um, again, like at, at VCU, you know, doing a lot of research on practice and experimentation with technology. And then realizing, oh, what I really want to do with my students was develop um, psychological, uh, those back to those psychological sort of dispositions of creativity, resilience, optimism, and discipline. And so I started borrowing from the sports world because I'd grown up doing sports in high school. And there, you know, athletics do a lot of journaling, like especially solo athletes. Um, so I started borrowing kind of the idea from the sports journaling and I produced journals for my studio every year at school for wait I've been there I said I started 2012 that's not true I started 2008 I think since 2011 or 12 I was doing journals with my students and this these were just their lesson workbooks and you know it was a practice journal writing down what they did goal setting is always a big part of it my notes um and in the beginning I just had reflection prompts um, I don't know, you know, uh, write about a very traumatic experience for you in music. Um, or, you know, write your former letter, uh, your former teacher a letter. They were kind of psychological questions. You know, what are your primary aspects, uh, assets as a musician? You know, are you determined? Are you competitive? Are you whatever? And then, um, you know, we were talking about simulation training earlier. You know, I'm like... Students have to be doing stuff. They have to experience to learn. So then I started adding um, activities to their journal. So their lesson was always like, here are your notes, you know, goal setting, you keep track of when you practice. And then they'd have like an action prompt. And that action prompt would be like, I'm making it up, but, you know, um, find three people you don't know all that well and ask them if you can play for them. <laughs> You know, it was a lot of simulation training. It was also um, score study. You know, this week, do all your score study with your pieces, look up terms, you know, imitate somebody on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So I was doing this for many years. And because, you know, you have the same students for four or five or sometimes six years in a row at the undergrad level, um, I was always writing new prompts. And then a couple of people started borrowing them at school and then outside of school, other professors. And then a friend of mine was like, you're so stupid. You're, you know, you're giving away all your work. This is a sign 
that like this resonates with people, why don't you publish? Why don't you get it together and publish a version? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to pick, you know, because I had like hundreds of prompts um, that I had collected. But it turns out it wasn't that difficult. So that's what I did like two years ago. I spent a summer just weeding through. Uh, so many of them were just for string players. All those got tossed, right? If it was like, oh, this this week, do something with your bow hand. Yeah, those were all out. Um, some of my psychological ones that, I don't know, didn't have a good result, you know, I tossed those. And then I had students actually help me, like, which I, I knew which were the most meaningful from my perspective, because I could tell, again, since everybody's on the same weekly prompt in the studio, you know, with these, I could see the whole studio, like, wow, big difference. You know what I mean? Lift. Everybody sounds better or everybody feels better or, oh my God, I just made them feel worse. Like <laughs> they yeah, hate yeah. me. They don't want to come to my <laughs> lesson. So, so there were kind of my lab rats in this whole thing, you know, but then at the end, I did ask some students and some former students like, okay, I've narrowed it down to, I don't know, these 30, but I really need to get to 16, you know, mark little hearts next to the ones that are your favorites or something. Um, and then I self-published for no other reason than like, it never occurred to me that a publisher would be interested. Um, now I'm like, oh, actually it's done quite well. People are interested. But at the time, you know, that didn't really occur to me. Um, and uh, also I wanted a relationship really with the clientele. So they, you know, they're available on my website um, there's the plug, <laughs> practisma.com yeah. with a Z. But they're also they're also available if you want to support um, some independent retailers. The uh, Flute Center in New York carries them, and performers in music in Chicago, Espresso Music in Boston. They are in some, um, again, not Amazon or something like that, but independent sellers, and those are listed on my website as well. But yeah, I'm looking at it. That's right how now. it came to be, and I think if somebody had asked me, oh you should write a little journal with prompts and activities and a place to, you know, track your practice. That would have been very intimidating, but it was kind of the reverse. I had just been doing it with my students. And then somebody said, you should really just sort through it and take your best stuff and, and publish it. And that was much easier and much less threatening. Yeah. It's an interesting, I, I've, as you were talking about just this concept, uh, the psychological concept, you know, one thing I learned through making these systems of practicing that I have and that I am able to share with like my clients and stuff. And now with, I mean, I, I can show this to you after we're done, but I, it now exists in the public sphere. One thing that I didn't understand right away is that the re, one of the reasons my systems are so effective for me is because I'm the one doing them. Like the way that I think about doing things is like, so I've had to figure out how do I share the way I think about doing things, not even in terms of the systems of things, but like, what is my just outlook on practice? Like, what am I trying to do? So I would find something like this. I'm actually going to, I'm going to buy one when we're done here because I'm interested in I what this looks you. like. Yeah, I'm interested in what this looks like. Or you just give it to me next week, maybe. Um, what it looks like to, yeah, to be able to develop like the whole, because we, as you and I both know, like, being an effective practicer, the systems are great and like all of that. But like, we need to also be a person who understands like what we're trying to accomplish with practice in general. It has less to do with proving to ourselves that we're going to be able to accomplish all of our dreams and goals and more to do with understanding that we're investing in a long-term 
relationship with our instrument and learning about what it is to do this and having like just a relationship that in in, like enriches our life essentially that's i really i really believe that actually and yeah that's why we're doing it it's it's the it's it's not the way to get there it is it is the thing it is it is the holy grail is the chase itself you know the journey itself i mean took me many many years to come to that but it's like oh wow i practice because i like to practice and I don't mean that I love every minute. That's not what I mean. But I mean that the value that it gives to my life, besides having yeah. a job and a roof over my head, but is like deeply spiritual for me at this point. You know, it's my me, me, me time. I, I practice. You know what the last thing I did before this interview was practice. Nice. And not because I had to, but because I was like, I had set up and, okay, the mic's working. Wait, do I know how to record? And and I was like, I felt that like rabbit I don't know. I got a little nervous and all that stuff. And I was like, nope, just going to do some scales right now. Just, you're just going to take, take all that energy, like focus. It's a way, it's a way to focus. So I really, I certainly don't have that relationship with it every day, but I can call upon it. And that's why I'm such a big believer in it. And I think that's why, you know, there are amateur players all over the world who don't have gigs, who don't have performances, who practice. I mean, agreed. It, yeah. it is like the karate or the gym or the, you know. Totally agreed. All that stuff. And I'm interested. It, sorry, I was just going to say I'm interested in helping that. I mean, I don't know how to do it, but I'm interested in like helping that group of people who just want to become better, mm-hmm. have the tools that are necessary. that's what we all necessary. want. Yeah. 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 What I tried to do sort of with the journal, I think because everybody is different, the, the, what I tried to do with the journal in terms of the prompts is have something a little bit for everybody because I think everybody is so different, you know, like that it's more about discovery and less about this is the way you do it. This is the way you should think. I try not to be prescriptive, you know, I just try to get people to try stuff out. So um, can I read a prompt? Would that be helpful? Or do we need to move on to other things? No, I mean, this is this is pretty much like the tail end. So okay. let's just fully go through this. And, you know, and then uh, yeah. like one is like, okay, selective hearing. This is an action challenge. Every single time you practice this week, prioritize only one of the following aspects for that individual practice session. It's like seeing everything through a particular pair of glasses, but with sound. Mark which skill you're honing in your journal and stick to only one concept for that practice session. You can rotate them from session to session to keep it fresh. But then I put, you know, rhythmic vitality, Fabulous intonation, amazing sound, grand expression, or clear articulation or diction. Now, for a lot of people, this might not work. They might try this and they might be like, okay, well, that was kind of fun, but I don't know if I got anything out of that. But for some people who tend to be very scatterbrained in practice, yeah, this could be, wow, this was so helpful, right? Just by deciding on each practice session what my primary focus is, it made practice better. I progressed more. I paid attention more, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like yeah. each action prompt is sort of here, try this on, you know, try on this pair of jeans and see what you get out of it and do it for a week. And then, you know, some of them will stick and people will be like, oh, I love this. I'm going to do this all the time. And some of them won't. And that was really the whole point of it. Yeah. You know? That's awesome. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in checking it out because I think it can... I think it will help make me a more effective coach, practice coach. You know, I think I was listening to a podcast episode earlier when I was working out and they were talking about 
people who are personal trainers, right? I was listening to a, a workout podcast or a fitness podcast. And he was talking about how this one individual had, you know, a full uh, a full week of clients, like 40 plus hours of billable weeks of, of personal training clients at a gym. And then he left that gym, three people came with, and then he built it back up at another place. And then I think he did it one more time. And they were talking about how there's a lot of personal training clients out there or, or trainers who are like, oh, I can't, I can't get people. I don't get it. And what the, the distinction that they were making here is that there are a lot of personal training uh, trainers out there who know all of the intricacies of the human body and how things work, but they don't know how to sort of like talk about it. They don't know how to communicate and they don't really understand that what people struggle with has less to do. Yeah, it's exactly like they were saying you kind of even need to be like sort of part therapist a little yes, bit. Yes, you do. Like just understanding how to broach some of those. Maybe you don't have to go all the way back to like your childhood, but maybe you do have to be able to broach some of these subjects of like fear and shame and people being able to understand that they're not proving something and it's not about acceptance and it's not about, you know, yeah, uh, validation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like just trying to help us help get our mindset in a good space for being able to make meaningful decisions really, right? We're trying to move all of that out of the way so we can be left with making logical, meaningful decisions in a practice session free from the things that hinder us. At least that's how I Yeah, I like it. that. Yeah, yeah. that's perfect. And so I like I'm interested in the journal because it sounds like to a, a large degree, you're trying to broach that subject in a way that you've seen work and you hope other people will have a relationship with it too. So yeah. I can't wait to check it out. Cool. Um, there's so many more things I want to ask you, but I don't want to take any more of your time this time. So I think in a period of time, we'll just do this again and we'll di we'll dig into how do we determine what a successful practice session looks like and how do we determine, you know, what is what is uh, a reasonable amount of progress to us to assess or to think that you can have. I mean, there's so many different things that we could get into the nitty gritty of practice, which I would love to do. But for now, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pause this here and pick it up later. For the time being, if you want to share with everyone, you kind of did a second ago, but I'll give you a full chance to share with everyone where the uh, different places they can find you. Sure, sure. I'm on uh, Instagram, um, more, more so than Facebook, but both of those, um, my handle is at Practisma with a Z. Um, and my website is Practisma.com. There are some um, practice tips there and some uh, stage fright simulation exercises for those who want to do some crazy stuff. And um, yeah, those are those are the places that they can uh, find me in my work. Awesome. So. If you need to get in touch with me for any reason, you can do that at that's not spit com or at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, you had any feelings at all, whatever, if you wouldn't mind giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. And also do not forget to share it on social media so other people can find out about it too. That would help out a lot. So uh, uh, please consider doing that. Uh, Susanna, thank you so much for giving me some of your time and just being so open and sharing. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope it was good for my audience oh, man. as well. I, I, feel, uh, I feel invigorated actually, you know, just <laughs> stirring all this up, talking about the emotions of practice and thank you so yeah, much it's like we, we definitely to be continued because i think you and i can geek out <laughs> pretty oh, pretty yeah. quickly oh yeah definitely so thanks for um, having me my pleasure I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing. And we'll see you next time.
Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Have you ever been dissatisfied with something? Especially something you put out into the world? I know I have. And whenever that happens, I just think to myself, Ugh. 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 And then I move on, and I keep going, and I try again, because I believe that I can do it, and I believe that you can do it. So keep doing it out there, and remember, shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>